Let's now turn for our scripture reading to the Gospel of Mark, and we'll begin reading from chapter 15, starting at uh, verse 40, and we'll continue down through the 13th verse of chapter 16. Now there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. So far from this reading of Scripture. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we're giving special attention to uh, the angel's words to the women who came uh, to the tomb of Jesus uh, just when the sun had risen, we're told. In verse 2, when the sun had risen, and I couldn't help but reflect upon what uh, the prophecy of Malachi says in the last chapter of his prophecy, the last chapter of the Bible, that uh, speaks of the son of righteousness, S-U-N, the son of righteousness who will arise with healing in his wings. And of course, that's a beautiful and figurative reference uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ who indeed rose from the dead, and in God's providence, and with this notice in the inspired text, we see that it coincided with the rising of the sun on that bright Sunday morning. 
And so this beautiful imagery combines with the reality of the Son of Righteousness arising in a way that uh, proclaims the brightness of the gospel which had not yet been made known until that morning. The dawning of the day that Sunday morning meant the dawning of the day of salvation, a salvation that had not yet shone with such brightness. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And uh, such words are appropriate, certainly, for every recurring Lord's Day. And uh, they have a special significance for that day of worship. But that's because, ultimately, of that first morning, the first day of the week, when Jesus first appeared to his disciples alive after his death. His death. His name shall be called Wonderful. We read in Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wonder of his person and work is, uh, is revealed nowhere else as it is in the death of our Savior and his subsequent resurrection from the grave. And a few days ago, we considered the wonder of Christ that shines out from his death. And this morning, we consider how just a few days later, the wonder of Jesus shines out from his empty tomb. And we want to begin by considering this joyful message that we hear from uh, the angel. It was still dark, we're told, in another gospel when the three women and others, there are others that are unmentioned here by name, uh, they left early that morning having purchased spices, uh, the evening before, after the Sabbath was over, because according to the Jewish observance of the Sunday, it was uh, over at sundown, and they had obtained spices, so that early in the morning, before the sun rose, they could go and anoint the body of Jesus with those spices. And uh, certainly this was a service of love. But we can also be sure that in their hearts, in their minds, it was a service of love that would be performed in in sadness as they face the reality of the dead body of the one whom they loved so dearly, and they did not come to the tomb expecting any bright light to shine in their hearts and turn their sadness into joy. In fact, they even wondered and worried if they could actually perform their task. They wondered whether uh, the stone would be a hindrance to forbid entry. It was very large. They moved that stone. Well, we're told in Matthew's account how that problem was dealt with in verse 2 of chapter 28, where it says there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And no doubt it was this same angel in a, in a milder form of display that then entered the tomb where these women saw him when they came to the tomb. But even so, they were alarmed when they saw him there. Uh, literally, they were terrified. The word could well be rendered with that strong, stronger word. They were terrified at the sight 
the strange events that confronted them, surprised them, filled them with wonder and questions and fear. And then we have the words of the angel spoken there in verse 6, first of all. And this this verse is uh, what we call one of those golden verses of of Scripture. Its meaning is so powerful and and so clear and uh and yet so so simple and sweet that a preacher may be tempted to do a little more than just uh repeat those words and let them stand as they are without further elaboration because they are so simple so powerful so clear these words really express what is at the heart of the story of our redemption the good part of the good news of the gospel depends upon this glorious truth. And it depends upon this glorious truth no less than it depends upon what happened on Good Friday. Because the fact is that Good Friday would not be good. Good Friday Friday would simply be remembered as a dark Friday without the dawning of this light of Christ's resurrection which proves the significance of what Jesus accomplished. He said, it is finished in loud words from the cross. Then he expired and went to the tomb. But his resurrection proves that indeed love's redeeming work was done, that Christ had made satisfaction for sins, that he had paid the full price for our sins, and his resurrection is a demonstration of that. He was delivered over for our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. Without that, indeed, it would be a dark day. But because of that glorious emergence of Jesus Christ from the dark tomb, there is a light that shines upon our lives. And what that means is that for everyone who is alive to this truth, we do not have to live our lives in quest for some meaning. We do not spend our lives searching for some purpose. We don't spend our days trying to find some hope in this dark world. We know that without Christ, there that would be a futile uh, quest. It would be completely fruitless. And we need to be reminded, we need to remember that in Christ, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the greatest purpose in living. We have the most glorious thing to focus on. We have the strongest reason for hope that nothing else compares to. To know Christ. To know Christ. There's no higher ambition than to know Christ. To know the power of His resurrection. The true significance of Jesus having conquered death and hell. The certainty of our justification through His blood because of His death, confirmed by His resurrection. There's no greater ambition. There's no higher calling. There's no source of hope or joy that compares to that. To know Christ, this Christ, who arose from the dead. The angel spoke this message as commissioned by the Lord Jesus. We know that Jesus is Lord of angels. When he came into the earth, 
the divine summons was let all the angels of God worship him. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 1. Myriads of angels who worship Jesus Christ as their God and Lord. And they are ministering spirits sent by God to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. And that's how we should see their ministry on Easter morning. As those who are filling out the commission of their Lord and their God to proclaim this message to these women. And that means that everything that they says is of great significance. Is a communication that was given to them by the Lord Jesus to share with them. And here, one of those angels, appearing as a man, we're told. It just simply says they saw a young man. But we know that that was an angel. But it may well be that his appearance was somewhat different than the way he appeared to those guards and terrified them with unearthly brightness. That doesn't mean that his appearance was not alarming. But the fact that he's spoken of as a man suggests that uh, he took a rather mild and familiar form in appearing to these distraught women because he came not to terrify them and to alarm them, but to remove their alarm and their sadness and their fear. And we ought to hear that even in the familiar kind of language that he uses. He doesn't come and say, my God and master has sent me to speak to you. No, he speaks of Jesus as known in his humiliation. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. That's a familiar term to them. And yes, the very one that was crucified, this angel knew all about it. And there is no mistaking the fact that the one who rose from the dead is the very one despised as the Nazarene, crucified, suffering the most shameful death. This one is not here. He is risen. See the place where he lay. The truth of this miracle is open to honest investigation. We have this simple and glorious declaration of the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And the wonder of Jesus shines out in that joyful message. But then we turn to consider further uh, the frightened messengers, these women themselves who were commissioned to carry a message to others. Coming early to the tomb that morning, uh, they were rewarded. And uh, certainly they outshined the disciples in the proof of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ, their practical Exercise of such love by their intention to show it in their care for his dead body. In fact, these ladies are often given what we might call honorable mention, highlighting the significance of their place in the story. That's why we began our reading with verse 40 of the previous chapter, where it makes reference to uh, women that were looking on from afar. They were there at the cross. They observed. A few of them are mentioned, but there were others, many who came uh, up with Jesus to Jerusalem. And then we're told at verse 47 that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, observed where he was laid. They were there when he died. They were there when he was placed in the tomb. And they were first to the tomb that Sunday morning. And they were the first to hear their, of their Lord's resurrection. And they were the first also to carry 
that joyful message to others. The message that was given them. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Now we read the next verse and we might think that they did a poor job carrying out this message. It says they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, they said nothing to anyone. That doesn't mean that they uh, refused to carry out their mission. It's just, it means that they spoke to no one on the way. And the reason given here is their alarm. They were terrified, we'd read before. Here we read that they fled, that they trembled, they were amazed, they were afraid. All these words that show how completely dismayed, confused, fearful these ladies were. But again, here we must say that this is not the whole story. And here's the value of, co- of comparing uh, one account with the other. In, uh, in Matthew's account, we're told that they went out quickly from the tomb with fear, but then it also includes with great joy. Well, certainly their fear and their anguish, though that joy accompanied it already, With the dawning of hope, that joy was confirmed because they met Jesus on the way. And Matthew tells us how he appeared to them and greeted them. Now, there's no doubt that some Christians in the first century, I mentioned that on Friday, that uh, there were Christians in the first century as these gospel accounts were yet being written by the inspired authors. Uh, There were those perhaps who had only Mark's account, it's one of the earlier uh, accounts published with Matthew, perhaps uh, Luke and John following later. So they perhaps had them or had Mark alone, at least for a time until the others were written and they together were gathered by the churches and received as the inspired infallible word of God as they are. But each account has its own purpose. Each account has its own uh its own detail. Each account has its own effect also in reading it. And again, while there is value in uh, conferring the other accounts so that we don't make mistakes, that's the main reason, and that we fill up the picture when necessary, we don't preach all four Gospels when we look at any individual account because we can miss the special emphasis and focus upon the one we're giving our attention to. Certainly Mark's words, and again, the same could be said of the other accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Mark's words have the ring of honesty and realism, even as the response of these ladies are described. You know, we might read their reaction and uh, and also the disciples' reaction that were told in verse 13, and they did not believe him either. And if you think about it, Try to put yourself back into that kind of situation. We might just as well say, you know, that's just how we would probably respond. These are things too great to be easily believed. These are things that are too amazing to quickly process. They're too wonderful, too otherworldly to just take in with all their significance. The wonder of Jesus is like that. The light that shines in him, it's blinding to our shallow and our earthly 
perceptions. Now, we're so familiar with this story, right? That we can fail to to see and to feel the wonder of it. Our familiarity with it just makes us accustomed to the facts. can actually dull us to the significance of what happened on that morning. But again, as we are alive to the truth, whatever emotions might be stirred on an Easter morning, we are glad, we are comforted, we rejoice in the fact that indeed in this great miracle, in this great historical event, in what happened so long ago, our life is bound, our eternal life is secured by this great and glorious Savior. We proceed through this account to consider another detail of the angel's message. Consider a gracious mention. And again, I want to repeat what was said before, that the angel said exactly what Jesus wanted him to say. And that includes the mention of Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you. Now, we don't really know the precise way in which uh, the Lord communicates his will and gives specific commission and uh, direction to his ministering servants so that they communicate his message exactly as he wants it to be communicated. In any kind of earthly, familiar way of this kind of uh, arrangement, you can imagine something like, now you make sure that you mention Peter, and you make sure that these ladies get it clear that when they tell the disciples that they make specific mention of Peter because the last time I saw Peter, there was a look of horror and guilt upon his face because he had just denied me there in the high priest's hall. And when I looked at him, the realization of what he did passed over his face. And then he went out and he wept as if his heart would break. And I want you to make sure that you mention Peter so that he knows that I've risen for him, that this message of joy is for him as well. Yeah, the grace of Jesus Christ shines out from the empty tomb with a message that the greatest sinner, no matter what people have done, no matter how guilty in Christ Jesus, there is forgiveness, there is complete joyful pardon and acceptance because of what the Lord has done. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus shining out here. Grace to all the disciples who had all acted in a very unworthy manner concerning their relationship to their Lord. Go tell my disciples, my brothers, he says in another account, to make clear that relationship and to communicate that all is forgiven, all is forgotten, that this is a day on which to rejoice and be glad. The mourning and the weeping would be replaced with joy. Your sorrow will be turned to joy, Jesus had told them. I will see you again, and your joy no one will take from you. Tell them that I'm going before them. They'll see me there in Galilee. The revelation of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, then finally, the planned meeting that is referred to here in the angel's message. He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. 
as he said to you. Now, actually, this takes us back just two chapters. It takes us to uh, the the evening in which Jesus was betrayed and in which he instituted the Lord's Supper and went into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and uh, uh, sang a hymn with them as they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then we read in chapter uh, 14, verse 27, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Three days ago, right, Jesus told them this. Three days in which the disciples' world, you might say, had been turned upside down. Days in which all their hopes and expectations had been shattered. They're dismayed. They're confused. They saw their Lord suffer this most shameful death, and they knew he was dead. And it seems like everything had changed in those three days in such a dark way. But not so for Jesus. Yes, he he had entered the storm of God's judgment. To use the language of the Psalms that often depict God's wrath in terms of waves and billows, all God's waves had swept over him. He went through flood and through fire, and he tasted the dust of death. But nothing's really changed. No change of plans. No surprises. Those three days didn't change anything like that. He had told them three days ago that he would meet them in Galilee. In fact, he had even said on that occasion, after I have been raised, something that no doubt was lost upon the disciples, and now he reminds them, simple as that. Simple as the unshakable, unchanging word of the Lord. And by calling their minds to his words of just a few days ago, they indeed are assured that this was all part of the plan. Nothing has changed. Their world, rather than being turned upside down, has just opened up, opened up so wide. Their Lord has conquered death. And then there is the meeting in Galilee, which also had special importance. We're, we're told about a meeting in Galilee in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, where it says towards the end of the chapter, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. In other words, the meeting at Galilee was not the first time in which Jesus saw the disciples after his resurrection. It wasn't the first, it wasn't the only time. But it's a time of great significance that Jesus referred to. It's a time appointed. And it says, when they saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, that very likely refers to the fact that this may well have been that occasion that Paul refers to when 500 saw him at once. And when he writes, he says, many of whom or most of whom are alive today. In other words, you could, you could talk to them about it if you have any doubts or questions. This very likely was that occasion when there were very many. But it's also the occasion in which Jesus gave this commission that the wonder of who he is and what he had done must be proclaimed throughout the world. 
Jesus spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The bright light of the empty tomb has shined out throughout the world. And it's still shining. And it's been shining down through the generations. More and more to people in every place. And it's shining here this morning. It's shining in the proclamation of the simple, wonderful story of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Christ the Lord is risen today. Amen.